Welcome to Outrage Overload, a science podcast about outrage and lowering the temperature. This is a bonus episode about bias in academia. Conservative media often rails against left bias in academia. Here's John Stossel. America's elites tend to go to college, and unfortunately today's colleges lean left, way left. A government report found at top universities, college professors who donate to politicians, 99% give to Democrats. You can't get a complete education if almost all your teachers think one way. Political science professor David Corbin teaches at the King's College, a rare school where not everyone is a leftist. So aren't they embarrassed? Don't they want to say we, we believe in diversity of ideas too? The assumption is that if you're a conservative and you're trying to do sociology, there's no, no need for you in this, this industry. Some conservative students say you have to adapt to survive in college. If they write a conservative-leaning essay, they'll get a bad grade. If I want an A, I tailor my papers to how the professor leans. They write a paper and they bring up a conservative viewpoint, they'll, they won't get a good grade. I mean, that's really wrong. And it's widespread. I don't personally buy into the popular version of left bias in academia portrayed in conservative media. I'm confident that none of the researchers that I've had on the show, regardless of their personal political leanings, have an agenda to indoctrinate our kids which is consistent with most findings. Here's author and sociology professor Neil Gross. My research shows that most professors are not out to indoctrinate their students politically. Professors are split on whether they say they reveal their own political orientations to their students, but regardless, most are intent on simply teaching students the content of their fields. To be sure, in left-leaning disciplines, like some of those in the social sciences and humanities, that intellectual content itself can sometimes have a left bearing. Uh, highlighting issues of inequality, oppression, social justice, and so on. But even where this is the case, most professors endeavor to be open to competing student points of view, although whether conservative students always experience the classroom environment in this way is another question. That said, the numbers don't lie. Although conservative claims of radicalism run amok in the academy are overblown, the American professoriate is in fact quite liberal. There's variation in professors' political views by field with the social sciences and humanities being the most left, and applied fields like engineering and business more to the right. That having been said, however, the data indicate that overall the professoriate is one of the most liberal major occupations in the U.S., and has been for decades. Today, if you're an academically talented student on the left, becoming a professor is something you might naturally consider as you search explicitly or implicitly for a career path that aligns with your political identity. By contrast, if you're a talented uh, student on the right, the chances are that you would never seriously contemplate a career in higher education. In this way, liberals are pulled in to academia and conservatives are steered out in a process that serves to further reinforce the academy's uh, reputation for liberalism. This is important and very relevant to this show because we are often presenting research from psychology and the social sciences. And that's what we're going to talk about on this episode of the Outrage Overload podcast. 
I'm your host, David Beckmeyer, and today we'll explore the complex landscape of academic research and the implications for our mission of disseminating high-quality information. Dr. Lawrence Eppert is our guest today because he brings a unique and unfiltered perspective on the challenges of ideological conformity in academia, shedding light on the importance of intellectual diversity. It's pretty bad. I mean, your question was, how bad is intellectual diversity? Um, most studies I've seen suggest it's gotten worse over time. That is always probably skewed to the left, but it's gotten a lot worse over time. Um, 17 to 1 in psychology, 40 to 1 in sociology, probably much worse in places like New England at some of the elite institutions. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. Get ready for a candid conversation that explores the impact of ideological conformity, the challenges faced by academics who dare to question the status quo, and why fostering diversity in thought is crucial for the advancement of knowledge. Let's soak up that wisdom right now with Dr. Lawrence Eppert. Today on the show, we have uh, Lawrence Eppert, a friend of the show. Um, Professor Eppert uh, has recently put out a four-piece, I think it's four-piece, right? Yep, four-part series. Four-part series on um, poisoning of the American mind. And, you know, we've um, talked about that series a little bit even before I saw it. We saw some hidden at it in, in our earlier show that we did together. And um, I thought that 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 was really excellent. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of depressing because that's the world we're in. But you know, it gives it offers a lot of uh, ideas for how to um, actually deal with misinformation and become a better sort of knowledge seeker. Um, and so, so, and then what we're going to talk to? I don't want to misrepresent that what we're going to talk about today is sort of like encompassing that whole document because I I kind of reached out and saw one little piece that I wanted to pull a thread on, and so we're going to do that. But uh, so we'll jump into that in a second. But I wanted to first give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about that series. Sure. So uh, a colleague of mine, Jacob Mackey at Occidental College, uh, we just finished a book manuscript titled The Poisoning of the American Mind. And uh, it's a look at the ways in which both progressives and conservatives in America um, are really becoming detached in some ways from reality um, using really poor standards of evidence for truth claims, that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, for a long time, my podcast, your podcast, many others have been focused on the ways in which the right wing has been becoming detached from reality with election denial and climate change denial and those sorts of things, you know, vaccines, those sorts of things. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I, I had noticed, you know, and as a social scientist, I know that we're all victims of confirmation bias um and you know it just depends upon the information you're surrounded by and i had noticed for a long time that the left had this problem i didn't think it was as pronounced but you know i, I used to teach a, a course on um deviance uh at, at a previous university that i taught at and you know i'd be, I'd be lecturing on all these things and everybody in the room agreed with me not because they were listening to me and heard the facts and were like well, he's made he's made a strong case because they agreed with me. Right. And so I was just sort of affirming their priors. And then and these are all, you know, very left wing students. And then I would get to a segment on um, 
a section on marijuana and I would talk about some of the negative health consequences of marijuana. And at that point they all are like, no, now, now you're not telling the truth. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, a colleague of mine, Lee McIntyre, he goes around the country talking to people who deny science and, you know, flat earthers and all that kind of stuff. And when he gives these lectures, they're often filled by left-wing people and they're nodding their heads like, yeah, that's terrible. Election denial is terrible. Flat earth, you know, people is terrible. And then he talks about GMOs. And again, the same thing, right? No, that's, that's actually true. GMOs are terrible for people. And he says, well, you know, the scientific evidence doesn't say that. So I, I had noticed that that was a problem. That, that the left suffered from that problem. But I sort of assumed that it wasn't as pronounced. But I think things are getting a lot worse on the left. And uh, this book really deals with both the left and the right. So that, that's sort of the premise of the book. And uh, it'll be out early 2024 from George Mason University Press. Nice. Yeah, and I'll make sure I have links to the um, to the series on in the show notes as well. And again, I, I want to thank you, though, for making the time to come on the show. I forgot, I forgot to do that earlier. Hey, man, you're a friend of my show. I'm a friend of your show. You know, it's uh, incestuous. <laughs> yeah, <so> since, <laughs> since you jumped into it, I guess I'm going to uh, head, head down that path a little bit. The, um, you know, because I try to do the same thing here where I try to sort of remind people, you know, uh, that this kind of stuff applies to both sides. And again, sometimes maybe you, as you note, you can sort of say, well, is it the same degree? Maybe not, but it's it's the same in essence often. Right. So, you know, this kind of leads towards, um, you know, I, I've talked to some researchers that have sort of expressed, you know, that they've suffered reputational harm from some of the findings they've had. I mean, one example was a study about perceptions about uh, backsliding on democracy and, their study found that it was about the same between Democrats and Republicans. And this was sort of self-reported, um, you know, and they didn't ask somebody, are you, dem- are you backsliding on democracy? They, they would ask these other questions that would sort of suggest, you know, that would be, well, if you're doing that, then you are backsliding on democracy. And, uh, you know, and they found that it was about the same among this self-reported and also the perception. So the perception of the other side was about the same error rate or, or differences. And, and the, the the actual willingness to backslide on democracy because you perceive the other side would do it first is kind of what the study was talking about, that you perceive the other side is going to do something, so I better do something first. And they found those numbers about the same. And they took flack, a lot of flack, for that. Like, that must be wrong. Like, you did something wrong. Those numbers can't be about the same. And so, and I know you talk a bit about these fears, uh, both from personal experience and, and um, others' colleagues, uh, sort of consequences from challenging those orthodoxies. So may- maybe you can talk about, speak about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know how much detail I want to go in here. <laughs> um, some of the stuff has been really awful, and I'm not sure that I want to talk about it because even just talking about it and getting in trouble. So there's lots of threats um, to your career and to your reputation. Um, one of the big ones is is students, right? So if a student makes a claim about you to administration, you know, sexism, racism, et cetera, for asking good faith questions in the classroom um, and, and for, for trying to stick to the evidence, you can get yourself into a world of trouble uh, and don't think that tenure protects you. You can be removed. Uh, people think tenure, once you get tenure, you're, you know, you're, you're a professor for life. Um, tenure grants you due process. And so the university has to initiate a process where they they um, 
you know, show some sort of pattern of behavior, but you can be removed. Um, it's just, it's just harder once you have tenure, but, um, you know, so, so students can, you know, it doesn't take, you know, most of my students don't want to hurt me. <laughs> most of my students don't want to hurt my career. I think most of my students actually like me. Right. But, uh, you know, one or two and then, you know, it, it's happened. One or two say something about, well, I don't quite like the way that he's talked about uh, race and crime. Right. So and that's actually a really good example. So you mentioned the fact that I teach racial inequality. And one of the things that when you're when you're teaching racial inequality, you have to deal with is mass incarceration. Right. Why, why do we have such differences in incarceration rates? And of course, we talk about the war on drugs and we talk about um, you know, discrepancies in, in terms of you know, sentencing and you know, crack cocaine versus you know, powder cocaine, those sorts of things. And all that's a part of the conversation. But there's also a really uncomfortable part of the conversation when it comes to things like violent crimes and property crimes. Uh, not every racial group is committing those crimes at the same rate. That gets to a deeper question, of course. Well, why is that? Right. And so I think it gets back to the same thing that the, the students want to blame it on racism. Right. And I think it is racism, but it's at a different point in time. Right. They want to say, well, it's a racist cop. Right. Who's just arresting somebody because they're black. Well, no. When it comes to violent crime and property crime, I think what it really has to do is how did our country become so segregated? Right. That some people are growing up in such hopeless conditions and such hopeless communities that they're more likely to be involved in crime. Right. That's still racism. Right. Like, how did we get so segregated? How did we get. Uh, to the point where we have such you know huge wealth gaps and those sorts of things. I mean, that's still racism. It's a different conversation about racism than just, I mean, it's easier, I think, for people to be like, well, it's a racist cop. It's more direct, right? It's like, this person is doing this thing. Let's stop them from doing that thing. Rather than this long process of like, well, how did we get these particular decisions about zoning and, you know, where we built highways and, you know, um, who we gave loans to after World War II? And the, I mean, these are big, complicated questions. I think they're the real answer to, to those questions, right? But I'm always walking on eggshells when we talk about that kind of stuff because I, I, I know the research front and back, right? I mean, that's not the problem. Uh, the problem is one little slip here or there, and you can get yourself into a world of trouble with the administration. So I'll give you an example. Um, and I wrote about this in the piece that you referenced at the top of this uh, show. Um so I do a lot of work on community inequalities, which actually applies to the conversation we just had about uh, uh, race and crime. You know, something like three quarters of African-American children grow up in really disadvantaged neighborhoods. It's like 5% of white children. It's a huge discrepancy. It contributes to all sorts of um, unequal outcomes from upper mobility to college graduation. I mentioned crime, not just involvement in crime, but victimization by crime, right? So there's all sorts of things that are tied to that. And so the work that I do is, uh, you know, I haven't, I, my work doesn't stand out among the field. I've, I've found the same things that everyone else is finding. I'm using the same data everyone else is using. And I find that there's huge inequalities between communities and people's success independent of their individual or family characteristics. So something about the community itself that's limiting people, right? And there's a variety of, of community characteristics that really, really matter that play a role. Uh, the ones that tend to play the most prominent role, though, are, is there a lot of social capital in the community? Do people have social ties to people in different social classes? That tends to really matter, right? So a poor kid 
who grows up among kids, even if they're poor, who have social capital will fare better than kids who are equally poor, but grow up among people who don't have social capital, social ties, right? To, to that, that sort of cut across the social classes. That really matters. School quality really, really matters. Something else that really matters, and this is where you start to run into trouble with the left, is family structure. And again, not just your family structure, but the family structure of those in your community, right? So if you are a child of a married parent couple, you're, you're a child of married parents, statistically speaking, you still have a, a lower likelihood of graduating from college, being upwardly mobile, being economically productive, et cetera, if you grew up in a community with lots of single parents, right? So irrespective of your own family structure, okay? Now, again, let me be clear. I wasn't the first to find this, <laughs> not even close, right? And I was using data from Raj Chetty and others, and, and uh, you know, I was finding things that were just, just sort of taken for granted in my field, that family structure matters at the individual level, but also at the community level. And so I sent this manuscript out for blind peer review and got the comments back. And uh, one of the reviewers was extremely uncomfortable with that finding. Well, number one, it's unethical for me to change my findings right? right? based upon the personal preferences of a reviewer. In addition to that, though, it was the strongest finding. It was the most powerful variable, right? So like, I'm, I'm not going to change my findings. That's unethical. And basically, I would just have to like withdraw my paper from consideration if I were to take this seriously. And so I was sort of stuck like, OK, this this person does not want me to talk about single parenthood because they feel like it blames the victim. They don't think that we should focus on that. We should focus on other things. You know, they've got these personal beliefs and they, they've let it bleed into their uh, professional life. I stood my ground. I made my case to the editor why I don't think this should be changed. And I actually won that argument. The article ended up getting published. Didn't have to change my findings. Um, but I've had so many experiences like that. Um, there's a lot of pressure to conform. And generally speaking, what happens is uh, you don't get to the point that I got to. Generally speaking, as you said, um, you just don't, the paper doesn't get published in the first place, right? It doesn't make it past peer review. Oftentimes it just gets desk rejected, which means the editor just doesn't even send it out for review. They just reject it themselves, right? So um, it's a problem. It's a problem. It's being dealt with. I'm hoping that we're going to turn the corner, but it's a huge problem. Well, and so what are you? What are some of the things that are being done to improve this situation? Well, I mentioned there's been a huge move, a uh, huge push for everybody to make all of their data um, publicly available. And I think that that's actually been successful, even though not everybody's data is just sitting out there somewhere in some repository for you to go get. Um, I do think the norms in our field have changed to the point where if let's say you were to publish a study, David Beckemeyer publishes a study on whatever, uh, whatever the, the issue may be. And if I were to then request your data from you in the past, people could say no. And it would just be like, well, you know, I can't, can't get their data. Today, I think the norms have changed to the point where if you were to say no, it would be assumed you did something wrong <laughs> and it would raise a huge red flag. So I do think that norm has changed. Um, I talked about pre-registering. Um, many 
journals are moving towards that so that you can't just sort of change your hypothesis mid-study when you find something different, right? Or or change your methods mid-study, right? Like you you said you were going to explore this hypothesis using these methods, either report your findings or don't. Um, but again, there's still that problem of there's not a lot of um, career rewards for doing replication studies. Um, you know, it's just journals don't want to publish them. You aren't going to get grants. You know, people want new, they want groundbreaking. And, you know, the other thing is I think uh, there's a problem of transparency with, uh, you know, you see all of the, the studies that get published. Right. And so there's sort of a publication bias, right? So if I do a study that says um, podcasters are racist, <laughs> you know, let's just say that was a study that I found. Right. Um, and so mine, I do an experiment and I find that they are right. And men, they're, they're, they're extraordinarily racist. They, they, they discriminate and that makes it through. Well, there could be 10 studies that did a similar experiment to mine and found that no discrimination exists, but if they never get published, then we don't actually know the weight of the evidence. Does that make sense? It looks to us like, well, there's been one study or five studies and of those five studies, four say there's a lot of discrimination and one say it's kind of mixed, right? Well, that's not the extent of studies that have been conducted. That's the extent of studies that have been published, right? So, and I don't know how you fix that. Um, I mean, the, the, the best way to fix that is um, just to have more intellectual diversity in academia so that more people are asking different kinds of questions based upon different assumptions. Uh, there's different gatekeepers at journals it's not all really left-leaning editors and reviewers. Um, we could pay reviewers, you know, to make it a more serious affair. So they'll pay closer attention. Um, we can make the reviews public. There's all sorts of things we could do. Um, and people are working on that problem right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea of paid reviewers. I also like the idea of, you know, like a review body that's, you know, sort of trying to be diverse. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, it's, it's hard because, uh, you know, I get, re I get requests all the time to review for journals and, you know, I'm writing right now. I'm, I just finished writing a book. I'm writing two more. I'm doing podcasts and writing newspaper articles. I also teach full time, uh, I have five kids. Um, <laughs> and you know, when somebody comes to me and says, you need to read this the 40 page study and go through their methods in detail, or you need to go through this book, right? This 300 page book in detail for free. Right. Uh, no matter how um, altruistic I am, no matter how uh, well-meaning and intentioned I am, that's not going to be the top of my priorities. And um, I'm not going to do a great job unless there's some um, reward for that. I do wonder, and again, I haven't thought this through, but I do wonder if we shouldn't just make the reviews public. If you shouldn't be able to read the reviews, see the different drafts those sorts of things. I mean, there's a lot of things we could do and make it really, really transparent. The reviews are anonymous too. I don't know the reviewer. The reviewer doesn't know me. So I don't know why that would be a problem. Um, I don't know. But, but, you know, a lot of this stuff, If you, a lot of this stuff sort of intellectual diversity in academia would solve a lot of these problems, right? The best way to get the best work is to have a bunch of people who aren't incentivized to agree with you to review it. Right. And that's, that's the best way 
I always tell my students, like, you know, don't uh, don't do straw man arguments, do steel man arguments. Right. Um, what's the best opposing argument to your idea? And if your idea can stand up, then it's a good idea. Right. You can't do that research yourself. Right. Like I can't do it. I'm a sociologist and I know like a sliver of sociology. Um, I don't know most sociology. I certainly don't know psychology. Right. Or ec economics or, you know, finance or whatever. Yeah. So I, I, I have to trust some other expert to say this has been vetted. Right. This has been done correctly. So we have these processes have to exist. None of us could ever. We live in a community of knowledge in the words of uh, Stephen Sloman and Philip Fernbach in their book, The Knowledge Illusion. Um, you know, our our complex, technologically advanced society thrives not because all of us are smart, because the community itself is smart. Right. And we outsource thinking to other people. That's how you get a really advanced society. Right. So you have to be able there has to be trust that there are experts out there who can be trusted. They're doing good faith work in their field. It's been vetted. We have to have that. You can't have a complex society without that. Right. So the the, the answer is not we should all become experts. Impossible. You can't. Most of us, I, I can't become an expert in all of sociology, let alone economics, psychology, political science, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So that's impossible. Not even the most genius, <laughs> brilliant person in the world can do that. We have to have trust that there are processes in place that are vetting uh, this research. And let me be clear, in my personal opinion, I think the vast majority of science writ large, natural and social, is doing a good job. I don't think it's malfunctioning on a, on a, on, on the, on the large scale. There are certain segments that I think are, and I think they're the segments that have become the most imbalanced when it comes to, um, you know, politics. And so 40 to one in sociology, I think we're malfunctioning. I think psychology is malfunctioning. Um, I do think the larger system is doing just fine, but unfortunately a lot of the most popular ideas in society that are being debated right now are coming out of those malfunctioning areas, you know, ideas about gender identity and policing, you know, and, you know, diversity training and, you know, and on and on and on. So. Right. Well, so it sounds like, um, this would probably not really be a great idea, but uh, maybe I need professor a, a segment on uh, professors anonymous. <laughs> so come on and tell their stories. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, you know, I don't know. You, you know, you walk down the hall and you, and you talk to people about this kind of stuff, and you got to shut the door and you got to kind of like know people. You don't just talk to someone you don't know very well on campus about this stuff right away. Um, you kind of kind of have to have rapport with them and sort of know where they stand right and that kind of stuff i do feel like they're you know i'm not the only one i mean there's plenty of people that feel like there's a problem um it's hard to know the numbers because it's hard to talk about publicly because there are very loud people who wield an extraordinary amount of power who can ruin you and i mean ruin you um and make you unemployable and, you know, this is a field that, you know, once you become an, it's a, it's a small network of people. Once you become an employee, but like you're done. Yeah. All right. Well, I know I've, I've uh, taken a little more of your time than we first talked about. Cool, man. All right, Lawrence. Good to talk to you. Always good to talk to you. All right. Thanks. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye. Later.
that is it for this episode of the Outrage Overload podcast. For links to everything we talked about on this episode, go to outrageoverload.net, where you can also find past episodes. You can also find past episodes on Apple, Spotify, and all the major podcast apps and platforms. You can follow me, David Beckmeyer, on Twitter, at Mr. Blog. Follow the show on Twitter or Instagram, at Outrage Overload. We are also on Facebook, slash Outrage Overload. If you would like to help the show, to help pay for transcription, hosting, and other costs to make the show better, there is a page for contributing on the website. If you really want to support the show, tell everyone you know about it. Share it on social media. Let them know. All right. See you in a few weeks.